Do we have any questions from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11? Got my notes back in hand. Ooh, in hand. That's dangerous. Any questions from Luke chapter 5? Yes, Zach. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I'm aware of that you can get a mother-in-law. Um, if there were more ways, yeah, that'd be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go to... Oh, no, he took his wife with him. Um, go to 1 Corinthians 9. Yeah, I, I, ref, I referenced this passage last week, but we didn't turn to it. In 1 Corinthians 9... Um, no, no, Paul, Paul took his wife with him on ministry. Peter, Peter, sorry, thank you. Peter, did, this plant, sorry, I'm hiding behind the plant, you guys. Hello. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, yes. I always, I, like I said last week, I, I never understood how the, the how priestly celibacy can be backed up scripturally when the one who Rome thinks is the first pope is married. Never understood that, but um, anyway, First um, Corinthians nine, um, five. Yeah, let's start in three. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And Cephas is simply Peter. So Peter and the other apostles take along their believing wife. Paul doesn't. So yes, he was married, and apparently his wife accompanied him at least on some of his journeys and ministry. So no, great question, and we got a clear answer in the Bible. All right. Other thoughts or questions? Um, first, from uh, Luke. Yeah, Peter, Peter's wife, and according to church history and church tradition, Peter, his wife, and his daughter were all crucified together upside down, encouraging each other while they were being crucified. I can only imagine of being crucified, let alone being crucified next to one of my children. And the faith it would take for them to encourage each other, not to deny, not to not to shrink back, but to persevere. That's just incredible. Um, it's pretty reliable and consistent church tradition and history. Um, and we know that one way or another, Peter would be martyred. That's from the end of John, when, when Jesus says, when you grow old, someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And by this, he spoke of the manner of Peter's death. So, um, yeah. Okay, anything else from Luke 5, 1 to 11? Yes, Wanda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's that, I mean, that really becomes, again, the challenge of authority, right? Um, if you if you're understanding the issue of authority and submission, it's it, it like anyone's got kids guess this right. The real ch- test of whether your children are obedient is not what they do when you promise them candy and they're in a good mood. 
when they're grumbling, when they're unhappy, when they're tired, when they're... I mean, the same thing at work with a boss, right? The real test of your submission to your boss is not how do you behave when things are going well. What do you do when you're tired and you don't want to do it and it seems stupid? And that's when you find out about authority. That's when you find out about submission and authority. You don't find it out really in any other place except there. It's when I least want to do it and I'm least in the mood to do it and I'm least inclined to do it. What do I do? Right? So it, that's what I'm saying. This is, Jesus is not picking a fight, but he's, he's bringing this to a point intentionally. You know what I mean? I mean, you think that through. Imagine if you worked all last night and you sat through this worship service and you're just finally getting ready to go home and it's like, okay, we're going to go out and work again. From a guy who, from Peter's vantage point, he's never seen Jesus fish. He, Jesus does not have a reputation of being a master fisherman. And so here's this, this guy who's, you know, he's a rabbi and he's a teacher and he's a prophet from God and he might even be the Messiah. I mean, all those ideas are rolling around in Peter's mind. But there's no reason to think he's a master fisherman telling you to do it the way you've never done it that doesn't work. It's, it's a pretty challenge of, okay, who's boss? Who wins? And praise God, Peter's faith wins out. He gets a little bit of a, this doesn't make any sense, but okay. You know, and Christ is merciful. But yeah. Other, yes. Bridget. Mm-hmm. I don't fully, I don't fully know. Um, when Paul wrote Corinthians, this is after Jesus' resurrection, when they're sent out to be witnesses in all the world. So it's as we try to harmonize the gospels, Peter apparently um, go, go over to go over to John one. I, I try not to do too much of this because I'm trying to teach Luke, but harmonizing the Gospels is still an important and legitimate task to do. I just What I'm trying to do on Sunday morning is before we harmonize them, let's teach Luke. But as you harmonize the Gospels, let's work backwards. Um, in John chapter 2, we get a definitive answer of what Jesus' first miracle was. It's the wedding at Cana. And so in John chapter 2... In verse um, 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this event of the wedding at Cana fits within one of the few places in John's gospel that has a tight chronology. Okay? Notice, um, it ends, and actually this is the event that ends the chronology because verse 12 says he stayed there for a few days and we don't know how long that is. But look how chapter 2, verse 1 begins, on the third day. Look at chapter 1, verse 43, the next day. Look at verse 35, the next day. Look at verse 29, the next day. And it all links back, the the original day, day 1 or day 0, is the day that John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Okay? So, and... So this is the, the, the day one is the day that Jesus, that Jesus is publicly identified by John the Baptist. And we know, this, this is all reverse engineering the history from the text, we know from John chapter 1 that Jesus has already been baptized. How do we know that? Because in um, the second day, John gives more information. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So this is taking place before his first miracle. 
after the baptism, right? Okay, so here's then what we get for chronology. Jesus is sent out, and Jesus is baptized by John, and according to Mark, immediately, ethos, immediately, he's driven out to be tempted by Satan. And then he apparently returns here first, back to John's ministry, before going to the wedding at Cana. And here is where he encounters Peter. Um, Because on the third day in this chronology, um, look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of the God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, which gives you the next day. They, they spent the night wherever he was lodging. For it was about the tenth hour. And they're counting hours from sunrise. The 10th hour after sunrise, it's getting to evening. They stayed the night there because it was the end of the day. For it was about the... And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said... So, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So there would be Peter's first encounter with Jesus. But when people went out to see John the Baptist, they weren't staying out there perpetually. Even though John the Baptist's ministry lasted many months, people might go out and, you know, it's a journey out there. You set up your tent, you stay there for a couple of days, and then you'd eventually have to go back to work. So Peter is able to leave work for a time and then return. And so he's made some sort of commitment to Christ. He's, he's made some sort of recognition of Jesus. And yet, there's more to learn here. And, and so when Jesus encounters Peter, the wedding at Cana has already happened, because that's his first miracle, right? And so if it's his first miracle, it takes place before the miracle of healing Peter's mother-in-law. It takes place before the other stuff. So Peter's already come to some level of faith in Jesus. He's already come to, you know, like you're already seeing, he's the Messiah. And they're, and they're piecing some of this stuff together. They're, you know, as they're learning more about who Jesus is, they're, they're receiving it and eagerly and adopting it. But, but apparently he didn't really click. He's Lord. And that's what we get in Luke Five is Peter coming to that, that. That's the movement is from master to Lord, from talking back to falling flat, fat on his face. That's the, uh, the acknowledgement that Peter comes to there that we're looking at, which is why I tried to zoom in on, okay, what is it about Jesus being Lord that Peter learns and what does that mean? Since that seems to be the focus, because it's not as though Peter has no opinion of who Jesus is. It's not as though Je- Jesus is some stranger. He's already encountered him. He spent the day in Peter's, in Peter's home. Um, unless, the, well, like actually it doesn't have to be that because Luke introduces five with basically once upon a time. Um, not quite that, but What's he say? How's he introduce five? Okay, five. On one occasion. Which technically means this could be before he healed Peter's mother-in-law. There's no reason it couldn't be. Um, We don't know where it fits in the chronology, except we know it's after the wedding at Cana, because the wedding at Cana was the first miracle. So sometime after the wedding of Cana, this happened. And so um, what was the question specifically about Peter and Peter... I, I, wow, I went soft. I'm rambling. Okay, sorry. The wife and the family. Wow, I'm really far afield, aren't I? I'm far afield. Um, and so 
Here's where Peter enters into full-time, quits his job discipleship. Up to this point, he's gone to the wedding of Cana. He's made day trips with Jesus. And I'm not saying that Peter's wife necessarily went on day trips, but apparently sometime after he folds up the shop, stops fishing, and becomes a full-time disciple, um, at the very least, after Christ's resurrection, as, as they're going out to other cities and stuff, his wife is coming with him. It's entirely possible they did as well. Um, we, we, we're only told who came. We're not told only who came. You get what I'm saying? And there's a crowd of people. There's no reason Peter's wife couldn't even be in that crowd. Um, well, there are other times when Peter says to him, look, we've forsaken all to follow you. And probably doesn't mean his wife is in tow at that point. So when they're staying closer to home, it's more possible and likely that she's staying home and you know they're staying in contact. Certainly when Peter begins going further afield after the resurrection, his wife's coming with him. So the least we can say is she, at any point in time, she might be with him. We know that she regularly did go with him in the in book of Acts in that time period. So we don't know. But they say, yeah, I don't, I don't, no, I don't know. I don't know where they'd stay. Generally, they'd stay in someone's house when they go into a town church planning, but on the road, they'd be in a tent, right? I mean, or if they'd necessarily find like a roadside hotel or something. Um, any other questions on this? Okay. Yes, Linda. I probably won't. What I what I said was. Um, our experience somehow when we were talking about demons and demon possession. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us as much. I mean, we can try to observe how to identify. Somehow, the people in that synagogue knew the guy was possessed by a demon. He wasn't just a weird guy. They knew that. Because when Jesus commands the spirit out of him, they're like, whoa. You know what I mean? I don't know how they knew that. That seemed to be more regular in that time period. The other thing we had to factor in is there's three periods in the Bible where miracles happen in great in great. Um, conjunction in a lot of them. You've got the ministry and life of Moses, where a lot of miracles happen. The ministry and life of Elijah and Elisha is surrounded by a lot of miracles. And the ministry and life of Jesus and the apostles, there's a lot of miracles. But for the rest of Israel's history, they're few and far between. But where they get grouped together in big clumps. So Jesus shows up, and now we get the greatest amount of demonic activity in the Bible. The amount of, the amount of demoniacs encountered and stuff like that. And in our experience, at least in the West... If it's happening, it's not being recognized like it was there. In very few places in our, where we live in the West are people being identified as, as demon-possessed. And most, most of the, I haven't looked at them fully. In fact, this, this is a very helpful book by David Pallison on the demon deliverance ministries. Um, I was trying to look up the, the part that I quoted poorly of him last week. Um, but, but reports from other areas in the world, especially in areas where, um, where the spiritism is... Is more. I mean, you're, you're guessing at demonic logic, right? And I gave you the C.S. Lewis quote, where the demons are just as happy to have the materialist as they are the magician, which is a guess. C.S. Lewis is 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 saying this would make sense to me. Um, and so, where you've got a, a secularist culture, you kind of spoil the game by having obvious supernatural things happening. You know, it's hard to have the secularist who's witnessing demons doing stuff. So the, the assumption, this is all guesswork, the assumption is in a materialist culture like the West here, a lower profile is kept to keep up secularism and, and to keep up um, anti-supernaturalism. You know what I mean? Now, that doesn't mean they're not active in doing things. I'm just saying a lower profile. You know, then the more obvious things were like, oh, here's our town, and we've got three people afflicted by demons. 
you know, you don't, you don't encounter that as much in the West, at least I don't. Um, what, what are you getting at? Oh, no, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No, no. No, no, no. No, I'm not denying for a second that Satan and his cohorts are not active, aggressively active in the West. I'm just saying they're keeping a lower profile. I'm not saying they're inactive. Paul makes it clear. Our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking him to devour. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of, of the demonic world. I'm just saying they can be more overt. Or they seem to be willing to be more overt in cultures that are already open to spiritualism. And it seems, just observations here, it seems that in more secular cultures they keep a lower profile. I'm not saying they're any less active. No. I'm just saying you, you show up here and the culture's like, oh yeah, that guy's got a demon in a way that our culture doesn't. That's all I'm saying. Somehow, and I don't know how they're able to tell that guy's got a demon. They did. And they knew who that person's a demoniac. I, I don't know how they knew that. I don't know what the telltale signs are. They just knew. And it seemed to be more common, at least in that time. That's all I'm saying. Um, in regards to demon possession, no, no doubt, no doubt Satan's active in this world. And no doubt we need to be aware that he's active and he's doing things. It's just when you look at their experience and our experience, there seems to be some difference in the frequency and the obviousness of, of demon possession. That's, that's all I'm getting at. That, that that clarify or help? Yes, Carol. Oh, yes, in fact, that, if we don't have any other questions, is a great segue for the next 10 minutes back into our study of spiritual gifts. And uh, Oh, no. <laughs> Last, no, I, I brought up, I, I, I made an unqualified statement that I got called on, rightly, by, uh, by Dave and his mom, Dave Pendris and, uh, and Bonnie. And, no, 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 that was excellent. And I made an unqualified statement. I was trying to dig into Palestine to make it more qualified. Um, and so really it's piggybacking off of something I said last week about the demon-possessed man and Jesus dealing with him. Although the two do dovetail nicely. Um, and and let, me, let me just bring into this, this whole issue of, um, of the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I talked about... i got 10 minutes. Okay. I'm pausing. Instead of dying to dive back into tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 in 10 minutes, I'd rather go here. Um, what you've got is, as you look at this, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Scripture... Um, by observation, we see some of them involve clear supernatural ability, and others do not. All of them are supernatural in origin. What I mean is gifts of administration, um, or even wisdom, or um, gifts of mercy and faith. Um, and then you see like gifts of miracles and, and, and healing on command, right? Um, and what we what we observe in church history 
is that, and this is pretty much, I mean, I've read on both sides this, there's basically, okay, there's basically three camps of what you do with church history, okay? Um, most people, even those in the charismatic camp, recognize that um, something changed, or some sort of change was made between what was taking place in the first century and early second century and now. What, what I mean by that is this. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he's assuming that their church, and he's assuming all the churches, have a smattering of all of these gifts, people who work miracles, people who can heal on command, people who can do all these things. Qu- quite obviously, um, that is not normal in, in our experience, and in church history, that is not normal. Now, it's not to say that those things don't happen. I'm talking about the frequency, the assumption that every local church is going to have a smattering of all of these gifts functioning. Um, that, that is abnormal to our experience. I'm not saying there aren't churches that claim that that's happening, but if you look at the universal worldwide church where the gospel is proclaimed, that is not the norm. And if you look over church history and you read about what was going on in church history, that was not the norm. So to explain that, um, you can come up with at least three options. One, um, you can come up with what's called cessationism, which is simply take the word to cease and then put an ision at the end of it, cessationism. Um, and those who hold the cessationism claim, believe, that the miraculous gifts, those gifts that involve working of miracles, those gifts that involve um, supernatural ability, um, died out and ceased sometime during the end, beginning of the second century, the apostolic era. Um, in that view, those gifts were primarily to confirm the message of the gospel, and once that message had been confirmed, they died out. Tying with what you were saying, the thought would be then in other places that have never heard the gospel, God would supply those miracles to confirm it there. Um, that's one view. My, the, the head of my old seminary, John MacArthur, that's the view he holds. He held the whole conference on that point. Cessationism. Then you've got um, what you call continuous, those who believe that the gifts have continued. And amongst that group, there's two variants, at least. One, what? Continuationism. That is un- that's unhelpful, but yes, we want to say it right. And then good guys, good guys are in this camp. John Piper is, is a continuationist. Wayne Grudem is a continuationist. D.A. Carson is a continuationist, right? Right? Yeah, he wrote Showing the Spirit, the exegesis of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. He, oh, he's not a strong one. I mean, there's, there's varieties within this, but he would not identify as a cessationist. Not at all. Um, so, what do you do then with 2,000 years where the majority of those 2,000 years, I mean, if you read about the ministry of Luther and Calvin and Athanasius and all of these people in church history, they're, they're, these things aren't happening in their churches. They're just, they're not. What do you... The Munster Kingdom... We're not going to talk about the Munster Kingdom, Zev. Thank you. Um, Okay. Okay. So, what one group within the continuationist or charismatic camp argues is that the the miraculous gifts entered in, ushered in this new age, the final age before the return of Christ, and that they also will return at the end, sort of to cap it at both ends. And if you've heard of the Vineyard Movement, 
Um, that's what they believe. And so the notion is, and you might hear them say that he saved his best wine for last, that, that just as the age began with a strong outpouring of the Spirit, so the age will draw to an end. And so the, re, the re-prominence, the rediscovery of those miraculous gifts is a sign that the end is drawing near. Okay, And that's one way to deal with the absence in church history. So that, that group would say, fair enough, for the last 1,800 years or so, they've been pretty much absent. However, in these latter times, they've returned, indicating the end of the age. And the vineyard movement would sort of hold to that. Um, third, I think third wave would hold to that, some other things. Um, and then there are those who try to say, no, no, they've always been here. I was in seminary, I had to read a book where guys trying to track them all through church history. And that did more to convince me that now, whatever we make of it, whatever we make of it, um, nothing like what was taking place in the first century continued on, unbroken, from the first century till now. So and that, that, I think, needs to be recognized by everybody. Now, that's not to say God doesn't do miracles. That's not to say God doesn't heal people. All that's to say is things have to be a little different than they were back when this was written. And, and if you can't recognize that, I, that, that, that's problematic. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Something's changed. Something's a little different. Things are not the same way as they were then. Um, you, you, and so then you want to know, okay, where am I at? I didn't identify myself in John MacArthur's camp. Um, Linda, don't get me, not yet, and Elsa, we got, yeah, um, tread lightly, okay, with fear and trembling, um, okay, with fear and trembling, um, it sure looks to me like things changed, and my reading of church history sure seems to indicate that you can read the Apostolic Fathers addressing the fact that these gifts were dying out in their experience. People living in the early 2nd century, you know, 125, 150 AD, are talking about how they're, they're, they're you know, that's not happening anymore. Um, now, all those, so it sure looks like something changed. And functionally, I have yet to see anything in my own personal experience that I, I believe is genuinely holds up to what the Bible um, indicates as, as this. Now, I've heard second, third-hand reports of things that sound biblical, that sound like what's in the Scripture, but I have never personally beheld a miracle done. I've never personally beheld a, a healing being accomplished. I know people who've been healed. but um, So I tend to be skeptical of those who claim that those things are taking place primarily because as I've had a chance to talk with and examine those people who claim to be working miracles, speaking other languages, as I ask them questions, as I draw them out, in my experience, um, it has not looked like what the Bible looks like. That's why as we're going through the gift of tongues, my goal is let's just see what it should look like. And then if you know people and that's what they're doing, awesome. And if you know people and that's not what they're doing, you can. this doesn't look like that. So technically, I am open but cautious, meaning I think you can't argue. It's undeniable the Bible was written while these things were happening. So I don't know how, from the Bible, you can argue they're over. Because when the Bible was written, they weren't over. So even if the Bible says they'll be over, how do we know if we've hit that mark yet? You've got to use your observation of deduction. So it sure looks to me like something changed. My deductions and my observations are not authoritative. So, so in many respects, functionally, I live in John MacArthur's camp because I don't expect to see. I have no expectation that I will see miracles performed. God certainly can if he wants. Um, and I certainly recognize something seems to have changed, but I don't think I can dogmatically deduce from Scripture that has happened, which means practically if somebody walked in here and said, I have the gift of healing or 
I have the gift of languages, or I have the gift of prophecy, I wouldn't say, no, you don't, which I think MacArthur, I hope, would lovingly say it, but he'd be like, no, you don't, those have ended. I'd have to say, okay, would you mind if, if uh, before you want to exercise this gift in this church, would you mind if I and the elders had some conversation with you and examined that? And basically, they'd, it, what they're doing would have to line up with the way it's supposed to look like in here. And that could happen. It hasn't yet. But it could happen, and, and I would have to take it everything case by case. So I'm technically open but cautious. In practice, I have no actual expectation to see you know, somebody who can walk in and know I have the gift of healing. Because let me distinguish the difference between God healing and someone with the gift of healing. God can and does heal. The gift of healing is I can do it on command. I, God has given me a power whereby I can heal. And that's where I say, let's go to the NICU warning. Let's go to the cancer ward. If you have the gift of healing, if you can heal on command, let's go. And if you can articulate an orthodox gospel and heal someone of cancer, you win. Hands down, no argument, you win. Game over, set, match, right? And, you know, that hasn't, in my experience, happened yet. But I can't totalize my experience to everybody's experience. So I'm just very, very cautious and... Uh, and think the best thing we can do is study what it should look like. So as we encounter people, if you know people who claim to be doing that, I'd encourage you rather than being like, oh, that's crazy, ask questions, draw them out, see if what they're saying, what they're doing, lines up with Scripture. We have two minutes, questions on that point. Yes, Wanda. Sure, yeah. I'm not even saying, I'm not even saying the gift of healing, no one has the gift of healing. I'm just saying, if someone claims that the gift of healing, that's pretty easy to verify or falsify. And, and I've never seen a verifiable case where a person has the gift of healing. doesn't mean it's not out there. I just haven't experienced it. I haven't seen it. And all the ones I've looked into have been less than impressive. It, no, when I was, no, when I first got saved, and I've got some dear, dear friends um, who, are, who are charismatics back in Laconia, New Hampshire, dear friends of mine. I went and spent a week with them last summer. They know the Lord. They love the Lord. They're, in many respects, more faithful than I am in many areas. Um, when I first got saved, I... I went to basically every church service in town simultaneously when I could. And, and I remember going to, to, to one of the church they were at at the time and thinking, Lord, if this is, you know, if this is what you're doing, even though to me um, this looks foolish, that's fine. I, the wisdom of God is supposed to be foolish to man. But as I looked into it, at least in that church, in that case, all the healings were unverifiable. My back pain's gone. My, my, my pain in my shoulder's gone. And, and not that God can't heal that, but again, if, if somebody didn't have a thumb, and someone laid hands on them, and then they had a thumb, and you could document that, you win. There wouldn't be a debate. Um, if somebody quoted, and I, I posted this on Facebook a month or so ago, the mere fact that those who claim to have these gifts have to make arguments to, to support their claims is a sufficient and devastating rebuttal to their claims. Because the one thing Jesus and the apostles didn't have to do is argue they could heal. They just did it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, again, let me be clear. I am not saying there are not people walking this earth that God has gifted with the gift of healing. I'm just saying if he has, it should be absolutely verifiable or falsifiable. There will be no ambiguity. None of the miracles that Jesus did was anyone like, well, I'm not, was he really? 
in every instance, it was undeniable. No one challenged that Jesus worked miracles. No one challenged that he actually did signs. So, so I'm just saying, if the only healing you can do is the unverifiable kind, I am very, very skeptical and suspicious. If, if the totality of your healing ministry is unverifiable, that isn't what's taking place in the Bible. That's all I'm saying. And, and I can't even say there, you're a liar. I'm just saying, this does not look like this. Yes, Alyssa. I don't know. No, that's a fair enough question. How did those who had the gift of, of, of any of these gifts know what gifts they have? People had gifts of administration, gifts of, gifts of um, faith, gifts of mercy, gifts of wisdom, gifts of prophecy. I don't know. Um, and you can't argue it was uncontrollable because Paul says the spirit of prophets are subjects to prophets. So it's not about some ecstatic, I just couldn't control myself, I started speaking. Because Paul is emphatic in 1 Corinthians 14, the spirits of prophecy. Because that's, if I start going too long and I'm like, oh, the spirit was like, you can say, no, the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. You've got to be done by time past. And, uh, you yeah, know, there you go. Um, because that's what Paul insists. Because he's talking about order in the worship service. And he's like, if one, if, if one, if the spirit gives revelation to one, they stand up and speak. And if another one does, he sits down. And then he says, for the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. He's anticipated the argument of, I was under the sway of the spirit and I couldn't stop. Yes, you can. I don't know. I don't know how you know what gifts you have. Um, I, I, I don't even know clearly how to distinguish between which gifts I have are natural gifts that God's given me grace to hone and which gifts of mine are supernatural gifts that I wouldn't have in any shape or fashion apart from the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't my experience when I got saved that immediately I was gifted in something I wasn't gifted before. Um, if Anyone who knew me growing up knows I like to talk. And so I look, at, I look at my giftedness, and I have a hard time distinguishing which gifts do I have are natural talents that through work and through discipline I've honed, and the Spirit's enabling, and which gifts are things that, quite frankly, I, I would never would have been able to do had it not been for the Holy Spirit giving me a gift. And in one sense, it doesn't matter because it's all from God. Whether it's a natural ability, but I'm going to boast about the color of my hair. Am I going to boast about, you know, my... No, Paul, Paul makes that clear. It's all from God. So in one sense, any giftedness I have is from Christ. Some of it comes through the channel of my own work, my own talents, my own ability, you know, as God ministers. And some of it comes straight from the Holy Spirit. And I don't know clearly even how to sort that out. So I, 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 how do you know what gifts you have? I, I don't know. Um, I would say this, if the purpose of the gifts is to edify the body, I'd start trying to edify the body and see where you're effective. That'd probably be a good, a good tip right there. The purpose of spiritual gifts, he gives to each individual and manifestations given in the Spirit to the common, for the common good. So you can't find out what your gifting is apart from the local church and apart from trying to encourage and edify believers. And then if you start trying to do that, where you are effective is somewhere within that circle of where you're effective is where you're gifted. That's, that's, I can say that pretty confidently because we're told the purpose of the gifts is the edification of the body. So, but even within that circle, I don't know which parts are natural things you've been working on and which things are just supernaturally gifted. I don't know. We are over time by five Al, yes. The newly elected chairman of the elders, everybody. Yes, Al. We did 11 verses today.
Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and let me be clear, if somebody lays hands on somebody and the person claims their back pain is gone, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying if that's the totality of your healing ministry, it doesn't look like what I see in here. And that doesn't even mean you don't have it. It doesn't even mean you don't have the gift of healing back pain. It just means we're off the pages of the Bible into new territory. That's all I'm saying. And so all I'm trying to do is when people claim to have these gifts, is what you're doing and how you're exercising it look like what I see here. And if the totality of your healing ministry is not verifiable, it does not look like what I see here. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. 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 I'm going to dismiss everybody just because the kids are being released and we're now seven minutes over. But thank you, Al. We'll, we can pick this up some more next week. And, and I want to make sure I'm not being misunderstood. Hold on. Hold on. 